0: All right, I think most are in. We'll officially get started. I'm so excited that you're here tonight for Christ and Culture. The topic tonight is Heaven, Hell, Eternal Destiny. Um, By uh, no stretch of the imagination, a large topic, if not a hot topic in our culture today, um, along with uh, many others, but this will be the one we're conquering tonight. And so um, what I want to do is, first of all, just thank you for being here. I hope that your presence here tonight um, reflects your heart that this matters to you and that it's more than just curiosity but the weight of eternity um, is in some ways resting on your hearts tonight and that um, this wouldn't be a night about us just getting smarter or finding answers to our questions but that this would be part of a process of us becoming more like Christ and, uh, and so what we're going to do is in case you're not sure uh, I'm going I'm to start teaching from God's word um, on the topics that we're going to be talking about tonight and then at the end we'll do a Q&A um, we are texting those in. Um, that, that allows us to vet your questions. Uh, two reasons. One, uh, just for appropriateness, but two, um, to keep us on topic because there's going to be a lot of spinoff conversations and questions that come out of tonight. So we want to keep it focused on the topic at hand. Um, we will be walking through the book of Revelation later this year as a church on Sunday morning. So we'll be getting deeper into the bigger picture this, uh, this later this year. Um, but for tonight, we're going to focus uh, as best we can on eternal destiny uh, for, for you and for I and for the world. And so with that being said, I'd like to start in prayer, and then we will move from there. So let's pray together. Um, Heavenly Father, we are um, grateful. Uh, we are heavy as we prepare God to think about eternity. Um, something that is beyond the grasp of our minds to fully comprehend. As we contemplate eternal blessing and eternal punishment, God, in the weight of that and what that might mean for our lives or the lives of those we love, God, we do want to enter into this conversation with humility and gratitude, with open minds and hearts, God, that you might speak tonight. So we invite your spirit as we open your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get started. So uh, two reasons why we set aside tonight, um, specifically for this topic. One, we haven't finished our uh, series, Unity of Faith. The last sermon in that series is Eternal Destiny, and so um, that's one reason why we picked that topic for tonight, but it's also somewhat a... Uh, debated and hot topic in our culture today um, with books out like um, Heaven is for Real, um, with Rob Bell's book, um, Love Wins, so many different perspectives swirling around. And so um, what we want to do is we want to we want to start with a couple of things. Let's get some bearings if we can, okay? And that's what I'm going to use this for, to give us some bearings on <laughs> big events in the temporal timeline of of human history, and this will hopefully help us kind of get our bearings, and then from there, we'll move to what this means for us personally as we walk through um, the word tonight, and so, um, I'll tell you what, so there's some big words that kind of surround this topic. One of them is the word eschaton or eschatology, um, anytime you hear that word, you need to be thinking about end times, the final events of God's plans, that's the end times, and so um, there typically is two different um, tensions in this topic. One is, is what you might call um, eschatophobia. And that's a person who's so fearful about the end times that they never want to think about it, never want to talk about it, never want to open God's word to that place. Maybe if they're reading through God's word and all of a sudden Jesus begins to talk about the end times, they just skip past it to get to the next uh, thing that they might read. And so um, there, is, there tends to be a phobia um, about the end times for some folks. And uh, on the other end of the spectrum, there tends to be uh, an eschaton mania, those who are obsessed with the end times, and that's all they think about, and uh, everything is a sign, and, and so those folks tend to be the ones who are predicting days and times and hours and locations of Jesus' return. They're buying or renting billboards. They're putting it on their website, and so far, um, they've, 100% of them, have been wrong, right? And so, um, and so those tend to be the folks who are a little bit more excited about the end times than maybe they should be. And so somewhere in between is where we want to rest. We want to have a, a healthy reverence, um, a he- healthy fear of God and reverence for the weight of eternity without, um, without taking every event that happens to us and turning it into the end times, right? And so um, we know this. Um, we are uh, approximately 2,000 years after the resurrection of Jesus, so we're a day closer to the end times than we were yesterday, Right, So we know that we're getting closer, um, but, then, but then there also might be current events that, that might play into us having our eyes open to be more watchful. So we're going to be talking about eschatology, and, uh, and we do so um, with the presupposition that really God is the only one who knows the day, the time, and the hour. All we know is what he's revealed to us in his word. And so that's why there's so many scriptures on that piece of paper in front of you, because we want to know what God would say to us about Eschatology or the end times. So, that being said, we're going to start in John 17. It's interesting, we were in this place last Sunday looking at this prayer of Jesus, and there's something that I, I came across as I was reading the prayer of Jesus I thought was relevant for tonight. Um, as Jesus is praying uh, in John 17, starting verse, 20, or 20, verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, and we presume that's all who would follow Jesus, may be with me where I am. So there's this longing from Jesus to the Father. I want to be with them. I want them to be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Now, hopefully this will set um, atone for everything we read tonight as we begin to talk about heaven and the reality of heaven and, and the beauty of heaven and what the point of heaven is that, that ultimately what Jesus is saying is I want to be with them. I don't want to just leave them on earth to carry out the commission. Ultimately, Father, I want to be with them and I want them to be with me and to see my glory. And so that's where we're going to be headed tonight. So let's just set kind of a, a framework uh, for, for temporal timeline. So if you just imagine this string up here Is temporal time reflecting beginning in Alpha Omega? Uh, Eternity extends beyond that way, it's further than you can imagine. Eternity extends further that way than you can imagine. But let's start with what we can imagine, and that's the beginning creation. Genesis 1, we have creation of the heaven, creation of heaven and earth, right? Well, not shortly after creation in Genesis 3. We have what's called the fall of man. This is where sin enters the world. So creation is Genesis 1, Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, God tells Adam, don't eat from this tree. Right now, Adam, all you know is good, very good. If you eat from this tree, you'll then have knowledge of what is good and evil. Don't eat from this tree. That was Genesis 2. What does he do in Genesis 3? He eats. And the warning God gives him is what? You will surely die. Okay. And so this is not only where sin enters the world. This is where... Death enters the world. So from Adam and Eve all the way up until the de- to us, we all experience, we come into this world anticipating we'll all experience death. In some form, fashion, or time, it's inevitable, right? So we also know from reading the Bible, if we believe the Bible, that at a point in history, around 2,000 years ago, God sent his son to earth to die, to be buried, and to resurrect from the grave on our behalf. And so this sits on the timeline. It's a significant part of the timeline. Right, And so if we begin to go down to this end of the timeline, Revelation 20, 21, 22, we know that at the very end of the Bible, at least, we get the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. There's references to a new heavens, new earth. And then we'll look at tonight, Revelation 21 and twenty, going into 22, we're going to see this described for us. Okay, So this is then what we would say marks the end of temporal time, temporary time. Non eternal, measurable, temporary time. Now, when you get to discussions about the end times, there are some significant events that people debate about over um, which one comes first, okay? And so some things that we know if we believe the Bible. We know that Jesus is coming back. If you believe the Bible and you believe what Jesus said, he is returning. That's fixed, it's not debatable. We also know the Bible clearly teaches. A resurrection of the dead. That in the same way that Jesus was resurrected at the end of the Gospels, those who will believe will will experience a real bodily resurrection of the dead. Now just to give you a couple of of, uh, things that you can maybe help you understand, there's a couple of other larger events that um, the Bible talks about. One is the time of tribulation. And so you'll read about this, time of tribulation. And so depending on where you put this on the timeline determines where you land theologically on this. okay? And so the tribulation, if you believe the tribulation happens before the second coming of Christ, you are a? If the, if, the, if the tribulation happens before, you're a post-trib, meaning Jesus comes back after. All right, yeah. So if you believe that the tribulation happens after Jesus comes back, then you are a pre-trib person. Okay, pretty simple, right? Then we have what's known as the millennial reign of Christ. Same thing. This one gets a little bit more complicated, quite possibly, and we're not going to hang them on the timeline, okay? So this is still for you to kind of to flesh out. So the Bible describes a millennial or a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And so depending on where you place this on the timeline, if you place it here, you are a post-millennial because Jesus comes back after the millennial reign. And if you place it here, you are a premillennial. then there's the amillennials, who um, see this as more of a figurative representation. okay? And so just something just to kind of help you, because some of you may be interested, some of you may have already studied this on your own, some of you may be about to study it. Um, For those who are are, uh, post-millennials, meaning that the millennium happens, and then the second coming of Christ, most of those folks believe that we're already in the thousand-year reign. It may not necessarily be a literal thousand-year reign, but we're already in. Since the church has launched, Jesus is beginning to save souls. And so for those folks, they see two major time periods happening on this timeline. One is the, the Jewish uh, time, where it is described in the Bible, this age. And so for those, who are, uh, for those who are post-millennial, what they're seeing is that the millennial is already happening. So the Jewish era ended about 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus in 70 A.D. at the destruction of the temple. And so that ends the first age, and the second age began at the resurrection. There's kind of a little overlap right here, and this second era then is the reign of Christ. Those, are, um, those would be your post-millennialists, where pre-millennial, pre-millennials would say, no, Jesus hasn't come back yet, so the millennial reign has not happened yet. All, millennia, all, all millennials... Um, look at it more figuratively, and so that just gets into a whole other topic. And so I want to lay these things out for you because some folks in the room maybe already have latched onto where you land. Others of you are still studying it, and some of you, this is the first time you've heard these words. But if you are faithful to read your Bible, you're going to come across these major events, and and you're going to be forced to answer the question, where where do I land on this? Really tonight, what we want to talk about, though, more specifically, so... You and I live after the resurrection of Jesus, right? We're clear on that. 2,000 years ago, Jesus resurrected from the grave around 30 A.D., ascended back to the Father. So your life has begun. Your death has not happened yet, and I hope it doesn't happen tonight. But at some point, your death will come. And we're going to talk a little bit about what happens between here and the resurrection of the dead. Okay, and so we're most interested in kind of tracking um, what happens to people here, and what it means for you and I? Everybody, good to go. You got your, your timeline all figured out, okay? Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and let's dig in. So, um, in Second Peter chapter three, uh, Peter warns us of some of the cultural issues that will take place in the end times. So, we're going to start in verse one, Second Peter three. Uh, he says, "Now, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved." In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, referring to the Old Testament, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. New Testament, verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So we already know that there's going to be some issues that arise in the last days, verse 4 tells us what one of those issues will be. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? It's been a long time. So right now, we would say it's been right 2,000 years. Where's he at? So they'll come and they'll say, where is, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, which we'll look at that later, metaphoric for dying, ever since the fathers have Fallen asleep or died, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, talking about the scoffers, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, talking about the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and earth now exist, are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so Peter's going to say the problem with that perspective is that people have forgotten that we're on a really big timeline here. And human history has already shown us that the timeline is long, going all the way back to creation. Now, Peter's writing this in the first century. So now here we are 2,000 years later. And he's saying scoffers are going to come. They're going to say, gosh, it's been a while. I mean, is Jesus really coming back? Are you still holding on to that promise? And what he's saying is, here's what's going on in their perspective. They've forgotten that the world has been in existence from, for a long time. It's been a long time since God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we're going to keep track in here. Let's talk for just a second about some of the things we get from culture's voice today. Okay, um, Jesus isn't coming back. People, people have become skeptical, right? I mean, 2,000 years. I mean, he said some things like, um, this is going to happen before your generation passes away. This is going to happen before you die, and those things haven't happened. What was he talking about? It's been too long. Let's give up on this, and let's go, go to the next religion. Um, another probably more popular um, thing that has emerged in our culture is the uh, revitalization of universalism or Unitarianism takes different forms. But the idea that everybody goes to heaven, or according to Rob Bell's book, everybody wins, or love wins, and everybody goes to heaven. And so today, that's an, uh, an emerging, um, uh, or I would say revitalized mindset that is beginning to really take some root in, uh, in the Christian church. And, uh, and it's not the first time that it's hit the scene, um, but it is something that folks are beginning to latch on to. Let's just, let's just forget hell altogether, Let's just believe in heaven. Let's just believe that love wins, and then we don't even have to have this conversation. So then a lot of things don't matter anymore. doesn't matter what you believe, because in the end, we're going to high-five, and we're gonna, the love of God is going to win, and, and we'll just all be in heaven. Well, um, there's also some misconceptions coming out of the, the Christian world as well, with a lot of the, the, bub- the, the books that have been published, movies that are, that are coming out. Um, So, uh, let me just run through some some different books that maybe you've read. Um, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, My Journey to Heaven, Flight to Heaven, To Heaven and Back, 90 Minutes of Heaven, uh, Nine Days in Heaven, 23 Minutes in Hell, and then a couple of bestsellers. One, I think, is still on the bestseller list right now, Proof of Heaven by uh, Eben Alexander, and then, of course, Heaven is for Real by Todd Burpo. I think that's how you say his name, which was, um, he's trying to capture the experience of, I believe it's his four-year-old son, At the time, and uh, and so he wrote this book down. Now it's become a movie. And um, the sad reality is that we're getting a lot of fiction out of the Christian world when it comes to heaven and hell. And so much of how we think about heaven and hell is shaped by um, the way that, like the you guys know, familiar with the is it the Far Side cartoons or the. Uh, that that used to come out in the newspaper, the black and white far side, or the pearly gate jokes. And so so much of our imagery of what heaven will be like is shaped by fiction. And that's coming out of the Christian world today. And so we definitely have an issue to discuss and a reason to go to God's word. Um, You know, here's the thing. There's so many books out right now about people going to heaven and coming back. Let's just deal with that issue real quick, okay? Um, There is no... Biblical evidence of anybody, and actually, we're going to look at maybe even the contrary of anybody being able to go to heaven and come back and talk about it. Okay, including Lazarus, who died and rose from the dead. Um, if you go back to Genesis, there's an event that happened in Genesis 28 with Jacob, and uh, and I think we we, we need to look here at what what is expressed and what happens. He sees this vision. So in Genesis 28 verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and he went towards Haran and he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. So he's camping out, uh, taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. That's a very uncomfortable position to be in. Um, but So he puts a rock under his head for a pillow, verse 12, and he dreamed and behold there was a ladder set up on earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold The angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So he's getting this imagery of angels going back and forth from from earth to heaven. And verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above it. So that's important. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you, to your offspring. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall be all the the families of the earth be blessed. It's that reiteration of that promise to Abraham from Genesis 12. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob, Jacob woke up. He awoke from his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is, this is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And what he's visualizing here is a gate to heaven, a ladder going back and forth to heaven. What's interesting, you get to so this is the Old Testament. Um, thinking about that vision, you get to Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4. Uh, the author of Proverbs writes, the, writes these questions down Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. As the author of Proverbs explains to us, only the creator himself has the authority to move from heaven to earth and from earth to heaven. In John chapter 3, Verse 13, we read these words in the New Testament. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, in no way are we trying to discredit that um, this little boy is a Christian or believes in Jesus or that his dad has good intentions. But what we don't want to do is stake our eternity on fiction, right? We need to know what God's Word says about heaven, about hell, about eternal destiny, how we get there and what happens, and clearly, we're seeing that there's an authority that resides in God alone to get there or to come back. There's no uh, jack and the beanstalk way to get to heaven. There's no way for you and I to get there and to come back or to move back and forth. Now, we're going back to 2 Peter, right? Scoffers are going to come in the end. Verse 8, and Peter says to us as a church, he says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a 1,000 years. And a 1,000 years as one day. Remember the problem they were having? Gosh, it's been a long time. It's been 2,000 years. They've completely lost sight of the, of the timeline. And what is he saying now to us? Remember this. 1,000 years is like a day. A day is like a 1,000 years. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some c- count slowness. So to you or to the scoffer, it might seem like God's taking his sweet little time, right? But that's not what he's doing. But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in So right now, we're living on the original earth that was created. There's a heaven and earth created. But what God's word is going to say is that this heaven and this earth will dissolve, will be burned up, and God will issue a new heaven and a new earth. All right, if you're tracking with us, let's talk for a second about human life then. What does that mean for us? Physical life, right? Everybody in the room has a physical life. You are born. You were conceived, you have a mother and father, whether you know who they are or not, whether you like them or not, you you received a lot of your physical DNA from mom and dad. Well, Let's talk for a minute about human life, okay? And so what we want to ask is, what we want to see is, what what am I? Am I simply just a physical body? Heart's pumping, I have DNA, um, I'm biologically alive, and then when I die, this thing just withers away and that's it? Or is there something else going on? Is there a spiritual side to who I am? Is there a soul involved in my human body? And so Ephesians chapter 1, we'll start there, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him, Jesus, before when? The foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, most will argue, and I would agree that this is applied mainly to salvation, soteriology, right? But here's what we know just from what we just read, that you and I were on the mind of God before when? The foundations of the world. So without going any further, it wasn't like God sat there in the delivery room waiting to see what you and I were going to look like, what personality we were going to have before he recognized us, before he knew us, but that somehow God in his ability to know all things and to be eternally existent knew about you, he knew about this day and this moment, before when? Before the foundations of the world. We continue on. Um, We see God's sovereignty over the womb. In so many instances, um, Isaac, right, Sarah was unable to conceive, and God opened her womb and she conceived. Uh, Jacob's birth as well. Samuel, Gideon, John the Baptist, and Jesus. God was sovereign over every one of their stories and every one of their places and time. He didn't wait for Sarah to get pregnant and see if he liked Isaac before he chose to work through him as a descendant. Before Isaac was ever conceived, he had a plan to work through Isaac and Jacob, right? We look at Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 1. Um, this is God speaking to Jeremiah, verse five: Before I formed you in the womb, I what? Knew you. Before, not while. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, where we're going here is, I wouldn't say in in any means that you and I um, have eternally existed. We are created. But I want you to see a proactivity by God, a, a sovereign work by God to bring you to life. It wasn't just left a chance. I, uh, I'll never forget, I was a sophomore in college, and um, a friend and I were eating at Applebee's, and we ran into a girl who we hadn't seen in a while um, from our freshman year in college. Actually, yeah, so uh, we ran into her, and she was waiting on us, and she had a little baby bump. And so we're, we're eating, and we're like, how do we ask the question? Like, it looks like, I mean, she, she's not married, but what's... what's how do we ask the question, right? And so she just comes up to the table, and we're all catching up. She goes, yeah, I had an oops, and she does this. And then she continues to take our orders and walks away. And I'm thinking, I know that was probably a light way for her to kind of, right, break the tension and keep us from having to ask the awkward question. But in my mind, I'm thinking, oops. Like, the sovereign hand of God is working in your womb right now. It wasn't necessarily part of your plan but from what I'm reading from God's word, he is sovereignly involved in creating life. Job, actually a little started with Psalm 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, so my soul knows it very well my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret the womb intricately woven in the depths of the earth used metaphorically your eyes saw my unformed substance that's going all the way back before you can even make it out like even before it looks like a little peanut right you saw my unformed substance In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This wasn't an accident for King David. It wasn't an accident for Isaac or Jacob or Samuel or Gideon or Jeremiah. And you are not an accident either. God didn't just rely on the DNA of your parents to figure out who you would be. He was intimately involved in bringing your life together, knitting you together. Job chapter 10, verse 8 says, Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay. There's some imagery for you. And will, and will you return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and, and curdle me like cheese, you clothe me with skin and, and flesh and you knit me together with bones and sinews and, and you have granted me life and steadfast love and your care has preserved my spirit. In this beautiful passage, Job describes how God knit him together with not just a physical body with skin, right, this inward substance, but with spirit. There's a soul involved in the creation of man. Now... um. I think this is an important topic, and we may come back to this when and spend more time on life in the womb when your life begins, but when we look at how life actually works, according to God's creation, Adam and Eve were created, and they gave life to their children, and their children gave life to their children, and so on and so forth. And if there's ever a breakdown, life ends there for that, that genera- generation, that DNA, and whatever, however you wanna look at it. So like, right, so for me, if, 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 if I die right now, there will be no children that come from me, right? Because life has ended, physical life. So I passed on, my wife and I passed on physical life to our children, to our boys. So if you wonder where life begins, I don't know that life, I mean, as soon as something is alive, it's alive. Whether it's a small substance or it looks like a peanut or six weeks old in the womb, God is intimately involved in bringing that life out into the world. Um, for those who would say then, you know, on the flip side, then, you know, so, so what about abortion? The Bible doesn't speak about abortion. Actually, it does. Did you know that in Exodus? We have a law against killing babies in the womb. Uh, you may not be familiar with this, but Exodus 21, this is right after the Ten Commandments. Um, and it, this is actually talking about accidental abortion, not even intentional, accidental. Uh, this is Exodus 21, 22. When men strive together, two men get in a fight, and they strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her her children come out, but there is no harm. Okay, so bump into this pregnant lady. We're fighting, we're scuffling, we knock her down, and then whenever she gives birth, there's no harm. Look at what it says. The one who hit her will surely be fine. You still got to pay a fine, Jack. You hit my wife. We had some stress here, unnecessary. You got to pay a fine. As the woman's husband shall impose on him. Uh, Let's go for a thousand. I'll take a thousand. And he shall pay as the judge determines. 23. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. This is going to sound familiar. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is a way that I believe God is revealing to us life is precious. He's intimately involved. He doesn't wait for us to come out of our mother's womb to decide. What we're going to be like or what, whether or not he can use us. But he's knitting us together. Every life here has been sovereignly knit together by the hand of God in your mother's womb. Using, utilizing the DNA of your parents. But guess what? Your, the DNA of your parents does not determine your spirit. Your soul. That part of you that will remain living, alive, conscious, aware, even after your body dies. God gives that to us. That's human life. Now let's talk about death for a minute. So, um, just to start with, death was not part of day one. When God ends every day of creation, he says, good, good, good. Once he's done, he says, very good. He gives the warning to Adam. Right now, Adam, all you know is good. All you know is very good. If you break my law, if you sin, you will then know not good. You will now know good and evil, and with that will come what? Death. Death was not part of the original creation. It happened after sin and disobedience and rebellion. Genesis two, here it is, sixteen and seventeen. The Lord commanded the man Adam, saying. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. You will begin to experience death. Did you know that every person in this room is experiencing death right now? You are not living in an eternal existence. Some of you feel like it. Some of you feel like you're going to live forever, especially if you're below 20, right? You feel like you're, you're just going to keep getting stronger and smarter, and, and you got the world. But there's a point. They tend to call it the midlife crisis where you begin to realize, oh crud, the table's just turned and I'm headed towards death. I'm getting, right? I feel achier. My body's beginning to become more feeble. I feel weaker. I'm not as strong as I used to be. And we, we, right? Every one of us, we're mortal. From the moment we're born, we're headed towards an imminent death. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul addresses this in verse 22. He says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ. Shall all be made alive. So, because we're all related to Adam, we're all gonna die physical death. So, also though, those in Christ shall be made alive, but each in his own order. This is interesting. So, each in his own order will be made alive. Christ, the first fruits. This is talking about the resurrection of Jesus. He gets to go first. He's first. That hasn't happened for us yet. He's first. He's the first fruits. Then, at his coming, right? Then in his coming, those who belong to Christ. That'll be our turn. So what happened with Jesus in the resurrection, we're looking forward to that, that each one of us who are in Christ would experience that as well. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, and after destroying every rule and every authority and and power, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. So as soon as the chapter opens, death is part of our human existence, our human story. And right before the timeline ends, what happens? You go to Revelation 20, death finally dies. Now let's talk for just a minute about then what happens before we get to the resurrection. For those who have died who are Christians, where are they right now? Because we're still waiting on a new heaven and a new earth, right? So where are they right now? Um, I've, I'll say this. So in my life personally, um, I have not lost somebody close to me, a family member, who did not profess to be a Christian. I've done some funerals for folks who, who were um, maybe uh, outwardly they were atheists. At least they were known to be atheists. They had shared that with people that they were atheists. I don't know what happened in their last moments if they... Chose to become Christians or not, but I have never personally lost somebody. So I know a lot of folks who, who I think about often, my grandma, my grandfather, uh, my, 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 uh, my granddad, uh, my dad's step-granddad. I think about a lot of your family members. I think about, uh, if you know Miss Nita, I think about her husband, Roger, who was a devoted follower of Jesus, served his church for years. I think about Joe Warren's dad, Joe Mize, if you knew him, just a faithful follower of Jesus. These, these people that we know and love who who profess faith in Jesus, where are they and what are they doing? So um, we're going to talk about um, an intermediate state, and that term is not in the Bible, but we're going to use that to kind of describe the time period between when we die physically, right? We're all, we're all going to die physically unless Jesus comes back first, but assuming that that's still down the timeline, what happens then for those who have passed away who Um, who are in Christ, even those who are not in Christ, where are they at, what are they doing, what's going on before we get to the resurrection. So let's talk about the intermediate state. Let's talk about some options. So one option would be nothing happens. This is an atheistic point of view. Nothing happens. Consciousness at death gives way to nothingness or unconsciousness. And so there are folks in our world who just believe that. I'm alive and when I die, I die. I just almost like going to sleep. I just quit thinking and everything goes black. It's done, and I don't know it's done because I've lost consciousness. So that's an atheistic perspective. Um, there's another perspective called soul rest, and this comes from uh, your Jehovah's Witness, your Seventh day Adventist, um, based on the idea that oftentimes in the scriptures, death is referred to as sleep, fallen asleep. We just read a passage earlier where they, the fathers had fallen asleep, and so the idea behind this is that the soul is now like taking a long nap. Okay? Soul rest is, is probably a more formal name. Um, another view that comes out of the Catholic Church is purgatory, and so purgatory is the idea that there is a place where we go um, that we can continue to receive atonement for our sins, purgatory. Um, it's a state of suffering and, and paying consequences uh, for your sins. It's inhabited by the souls of sinners who are atoning their sins before going to heaven. They're being purified, whether it's their atoning They're suffering, or family members are back on earth atoning for them. They're going through some type of atonement before the heavens come, so they're getting purified and cleansed, purgatory. Now, um, the the problem is that um, the Bible doesn't teach anything about purgatory. And there is absolutely no place in the Bible that talks about an atonement for sin other than what Christ has finished on the cross on our behalf. And the only way to receive that atonement is by faith in this life. Faith alone, grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Three of the five solas, right? Through the revealed will of God, through scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. There's all five. And so this idea that somehow somebody else can atone for your sins or that you could after death suffer enough long enough or pay enough penalties that you could atone for your own sins, it's not a biblical teaching. The Bible teaches that the chasm between where I am in my sins and where I need to be to get into heaven is such a vast and extreme chasm, there's no way with with, with 10,000 years of suffering that I could ever atone for my sin the way that Jesus has atoned for my sin once and for all at the cross. And so any teaching uh, that would teach another atonement is contrary to the gospel that we believe. Faith alone, in Christ alone, for our salvation. So then what does the Bible teach about those who have died before the resurrection? All right, if you're tracking with us, let's go to just a few few examples. So let's go to the thief on the cross, okay? Not super definitive, but there's a moment uh, when Jesus is on the cross, there are two other criminals hanging on the cross. Uh, Luke 23, starting in verse 39. One of the criminals... Uh, one of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him, at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal, the other, rebuked him. So there's one criminal who's just ripping on Jesus. If you're the Son of God, why don't you fix this mess? This, I, this hurts. We're, I don't know if you know us or not, we're going to die. This is not end well for us, Jesus. Why don't you fix this? Well, the other criminal begins to take up for Jesus. Look at what he says. But the other rebuked him, saying to that criminal, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Are you not scared? Why are you being so boastful and so arrogant? Verse 41. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, as he talks to this other criminal. We're up here because we messed up. Look at what he says. And he said, But this man has done nothing wrong. Then in verse 42, he speaks to Jesus. He said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Not a whole lot of theology there. He's looking forward to a kingdom come, and he's saying, I believe you're the one that can get me in there. Jesus, remember me. And Jesus responds and says to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Okay, so that that man died that day. And what did Jesus promise? Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, that doesn't say that the man's soul wouldn't be asleep, but it does say what? Because of your faith, you get to be with me. There's no place you need to go to to be atoned for. I'm not going to see you in a thousand years. I'm not going to see you when you pay back all that you've done wrong. I'll see you today based on your faith. We look at the stoning of Stephen. I love this. This is in Acts 7. Man, poor Stephen. I mean, he's, for all we can tell, he's somewhat new to the ministry. Um, In Acts 6, he's chosen to come help out because the apostles are being overwhelmed. And he's chosen as a man who, among several others, who's full of the Holy Spirit, who can help out with the weight of ministry. The very next chapter, he's arrested, drugged to the edge of the city, to be stoned to death. And so what does he do? He stands up and he preaches this beautiful sermon. And then we're going to pick it up at the end of the sermon. This is in Acts 7.54. And so now when they heard these things, they heard what he preached, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. That's not a very pleasant noise. But he, being Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Do you remember Jesus' prayer where we started in John 17? I pray that they would be with me and they would be able to see my glory. This is beginning to happen for Stephen as his life begins to, his physical life draws to an end. The heavens open up. He's beginning to see what Jesus prayed for. Verse 57 says But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. They just rushed him now. At first, they're just making these loud noises at him, they're probably making fun of him. And then he's not even hearing it. His eyes are focused on what's about to happen next. The heavens are beginning to open up. He's beginning to see the glory of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. And he says it out loud. And so now they put their hands on their ears and they just rush him. Verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. He's about to become Paul. Right now, this this brother, he is after the church to kill Christians. Verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, we're going to see, I don't believe Stephen was entering into a long nap. I believe his physical body was getting ready. It was dying. He's seeing the Son of Man at the right hand of God. If anything, his spirit is waking up to something that he's never seen before. He had hoped for maybe, but never, couldn't even imagine what he was, he was seeing with his own eyes. Let's t- take Paul now. Paul becomes a Christian, writes multiple letters to the church. Philippians 1 21, Paul says this For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Strange thing to say. Verse 22 If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. If I, if, Jesus leaves me here on earth a little while longer, just ticks that down a little bit further. Fantastic. means fruitful ministry. I'll share the gospel with more people, more people will be saved. Awesome. But then look at what he says. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. So what is he saying? If I depart, if I die... I'm not going to sleep, I'm not taking a nap, I'm not going somewhere else, I'm not going on vacation, I'm going to be with Jesus. It's what Jesus prayed for, it's what we see happening for Stephen. and Now Paul's saying, that's what'll happen to me if I die, you better believe it. Don't you mourn for me, I'm going to be with him. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. I will oftentimes read this at the funeral of somebody who professed to be a follower of Jesus and I always say that because I don't know. I can't judge the heart, right? I can only go off what somebody lived for and stood for and what they said they believe. And so, um, matter of fact, um, I mentioned some, some folks earlier. was in the hospital room with Joe Warren's dad, Joe Mize, when he passed away um, this last year. And, and his son-in-law, J.L. Fox, who's a member here, um, he referred to this passage we're about to read. The moment that Mr. Mize took his last breath, his physical body finally passed. Referred to this passage from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6, so we are always of good courage, no matter what we're facing in life. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. Verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. To be absent from the body is to be where? To be present with Jesus. So it's unmistakable right here from these passages that when we die, for those who are Christians, when we die, we know who we're with, right? We go to be with the Lord. Um, Multiple passages we could go to. Let's just look at one more, Revelation chapter 6. This appears to be um, coming from the hearts and the mouths of those who have died... In Christ, but have not yet resurrected. And they're talking, okay? They're, they're awake, they're talking. Look at what we get from Revelation 6, starting in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. These are Christ's followers. Matter of fact, these are Christ's followers who actually died because of what they stood for in Christ, martyrs. And so I saw what? I saw physical bodies? No. I saw the souls of those. So they haven't yet been reunited with physical body. No physical resurrection has taken place. The souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Now, this doesn't mean they're going back to sleep. It's this idea of patience and waiting. They're awake here. They're talking to Jesus. They're praying out with expectation for something, right? When? When will this be done? And then they're told, Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. This idea that there are more martyrs to be had. So we understand there's going to be more martyrs to be had. Those who would give their lives for the sake of following Jesus. That isn't done yet. Now, um, it seems to me that these souls are awake. Right? It seems to me that they're awake. It seems that they're speaking to the Lord, so they must be with him to be speaking to him. But not only that, they're still waiting in expectation for something. They haven't fully received what they've been promised. They're looking forward to something that isn't complete. Now, when we think about the heavens and the earth, the current heavens and the earth coming to an end, one of the words that I like to use is a final reckoning. This is the point where all wrongs are made right, this is the place where um, evil is finally ended. Because we often wonder that, right? If you're sovereign Lord, if Jesus, you've defeated life and death, why is evil still rampant here on the earth? Evil will have its last day. There will be a final word of the Lord that ends all things. And so, from reading this passage, those who are in Christ who fall asleep, their bodies die, but their souls are still awake in the presence of Jesus are still waiting in expectation of a final reckoning, a final making right of all things. Now, this is oftentimes called the intermediate state. It's not necessarily a biblical term, but it's the best we can do by by looking at the Bible and believing what the Bible says about what happens. So we don't want to get into fictitious ideas, right? Making things up. Well, my granddad really loved to play golf, so he's out on the golf course right now. I mean, let's just don't make stuff up. Right? I'm not saying that in and of itself, just thinking pleasantly about your loved ones is a bad thing, but let's don't stake our eternity on fiction. The point is who you're with. Right? That should be the imagery in our mind. If you have a loved one, especially a loved one who is in Christ, who has passed away, you need to imagine them with Jesus, first and foremost. You want to put, him, put them with Jesus on the golf course? Fantastic. But make sure they're with him, because that's the point here. All right, well, let's talk about the resurrection. You tracking? You good? All right, let's talk a little bit about the resurrection and what we can expect then as we expect a physical resurrection. So it is that. It is, in fact, a physical body, right? So there's this idea that the souls will be reunited with physical body, a real physical body. Jesus was resurrected really. He ate food. Physical body, right? Now, it's a perfected physical body. Free from deformity, free from handicap, right? Our minds are free from mental disorders. Praise Jesus, I have too many of them. So do you. Free. Minds, free. Bodies free from pain. Minds free from torment. Hearts free from burdens. Perfect. So let's, let's talk a little bit about what the scriptures, how they inform us on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 is a beautiful chapter about the resurrection, the whole chapter. Matter of fact, Paul goes to the extent of saying, if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, let's hang it all up. Let's clear the timeline. Let's, let's go atheist. You, you need to feel sorry for us if Jesus didn't really resurrect from the dead. Because we're hanging everything on this moment in time. Everything. Right? So what happens here goes All the way that way and all the way that way. And defines how we understand the timeline. And also defines where we will be someday on the timeline. Later on in chapter 15, verse uh, 42, Paul writes, he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Talking about Jesus. So he had a perishable body. That's how he was able to die. But when he resurrected, he resurrected with an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Describing our resurrection. His resurrection, therefore ours. It is sown a natural body, is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. This idea of a real resurrected physical body that's full of spirit. Um, Acts 24. Verse fourteen. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which was a, um, the way that was a, was a, was <laughs> was the way, was the way that Christianity was referred to early on, the way. Okay, and so have that in mind, talking about Christianity. But this I confess to you, that according to the way or Christianity, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. I believe the Old Testament. Verse fifteen, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So now we're beginning to hear that not only will those who are in Christ be resurrected, even those who are not in Christ are resurrected. The resurrection applies to all. Think about that. In John chapter 5 verse 28 Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Whose voice? Jesus. Hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So all will be resurrected. Those who believed in Jesus and followed him and those who didn't, those who rejected him. All will be resurrected. We're over halfway. Now, let's, let's go to Christ's return and let's look at that. Now, a few weeks ago, about a month ago, we actually spent a whole Sunday on, the, on Christ's return. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time there today or tonight. Um, just one passage, Matthew 25, uh, verses 31 and 32. So the return of Christ. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations... Okay, who, who resurrects? The just and the unjust, those who follow Jesus and those who didn't. Now in this imagery, Jesus is saying all the nations, and he will separate pre- people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So not only will there be a resurrection of all people, there will be a separation. And we'll read more about the sheep and the goats later, but there will be a distinction between two different groups of folks who are resurrected. It's from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, verses 1 through 3. This is the Old Testament looking forward. The Old Testament looking forward. Sorry, it's backwards for you. Book of Daniel, somewhere back in here in the timeline, looking forward. Verses 1 through 3. At that time, so he's thinking forward, shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people, and there shall be a time of trouble. Such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. To those who turn, to those who turn. To those, excuse me, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So some would say, well, the idea of a resurrection to eternal blessing or eternal judgment is a New Testament um, idea. This is the Old Testament. Daniel's saying this, right? He's pointing clearly at the resurrection and two distinct groups of folks. So what we're gonna do now is we're gonna talk about hell. We're gonna talk about eternal punishment. And... <clears throat> I think I think it is a, a mistake to approach a topic like this um, without a great deal of humility and caution. And so think about this for a minute. If what the Bible teaches about hell is true, I mean that's that's a big deal. Okay? Now if if you're a person who believes the Bible, and so therefore you believe that hell is real right? And in the end, it's not real. Then what you've done is you spend a whole lot of time stirring up a bunch of unnecessary fear that would burden folks. However, if you're here today and you say, I just don't believe that hell is real, and it ends up turning out to be real, right? That's a big deal. And so what we want to know tonight is what does the Bible say? But either way, we need to feel a great deal of weight, Like nothing should fuel us to be more compassionate, more mission-minded, more loving, more caring, more sacrificial for the sake of others than the idea that there is the possibility that that person could spend eternity separated from God in hell. Now, I don't think it should ever be a motivation for trying to get somebody saved. You, you, you've probably heard about the revivals, the Hellstone Brimfire revival sermons, where oftentimes hell was used as a motivator to wake people up and right, and to scare people into giving money or becoming Christians. And like, that, that's not the point here. Now let's let's get into what how the scriptures um, describe and talk about hell. Then, hell overall is described as a place of punishment for those who don't believe in Jesus. Uh, Matthew seven. This is Jesus, verse 13. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. They look like Christians, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Verse 16, here's how you'll recognize them. By their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bear, bears bad fruit. Verse 18, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree does not bear good fruit. Every tree that it does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And we're gonna read that again and again from the teachings of Jesus. Bad fruit means bad tree. Bad trees are cut down and burned in the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is talking about, I believe, resurrection. Not everybody who resurrects, even some of those who resurrect, will say, Lord, Lord. And he says, Now everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and, and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In John chapter 15, Jesus says it this way. I am the vine. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Two different groups of people. Those who don't bear fruit and those who do. That it may bear more fruit. Verse six: If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Uh, Matthew thirteen is um, is a, is, a, is a really a helpful chapter on um, eternity, the gospel, and eternity, and how the kingdom of God works, and. The use of agricultural um, illustrations is really thick in chapter 13. Most of chapter 13 of Matthew is agricultural. There's a few other ones, the treasure hidden in the field, pearls, but mostly it's talking about agriculture. So he begins in Matthew 13 um, with a a parable about seeds being sown, the gospel going out and landing on different soils. Some of you are familiar with this parable where Jesus teaches this. Uh, There's four different soils. There's the path, there's the rocks, there's the thorn bush, and the only seeds that bear fruit is the seed that falls on the good soil, okay? So that's Jesus is teaching that, and then later on he teaches about how um, as, the, um, as, as the seeds bear, grow up and bear fruit, he begins to call these plants wheat, and he talks about how there's weeds planted along with the wheat. And so this is where we'll, in Matthew 13, 30, after describing how that works, he says, "...let both grow together until the harvest." And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. There'll be a gathering, there'll be a harvest, there'll be a resurrection. There'll be a time when the nations will be gathered before King Jesus. And there'll be a separation. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him he will gather all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for for you from the foundation of the world. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. He's describing the fruit that came out of their lives. Remember the determining factor? They'll be known by their fruit. He's saying fruit came out of your lives. I saw it in the way you loved other people. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. You remember those we just read about who will say, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do all these religious things in your name? And look what he's saying. You may have done those things, but you didn't welcome. You didn't clothe. You didn't visit the sick or the prison. Verse 44, then they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. There's no fruit coming out of your life and these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. If we believe the Bible, what Jesus is just saying to you and me is that every human being you come in contact with, Every human being you don't come in contact with. But let's think about it. Every human being you come in contact with will be in one of those two categories. Do you see people that way? See, I think we're so fixated on what happens right here. Right? My job, my career, my whatever I've got going on right here that we forget that there's a much bigger timeline going on and that people live and they die. And if we believe the Bible... When this happens, right, something is fixed. Look with me at Luke chapter 16. Jesus is going to use a story, a parable, to illustrate a great truth about what happens when we die and the permanence of that situation. So he tells a story about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. This is probably... Fictitious, a parable, it's just illustrating something, okay? So don't read into this the Lazarus who Jesus raised from the dead. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted um, sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered in sores. There's a distinction. This guy had it good. He, he was well-clothed. This man was poor, Lazarus. He was not well-clothed. He had sores for clothing. Verse 21, who desired, and he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. So in this illustration, you've got a poor man who was desperate here on earth, destitute, didn't look like anybody loved him, looked like God had forsaken him. Yet, when he died, what happens? He's gathered with the angels, by the angels, and he's taken to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. It's debatable whether or not you can see from hell into heaven or not, but in this illustration, you can to illustrate some kind of great truth. And so he sees Abraham, he sees Lazarus. He's being tormented in hell or in Hades. 24, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. He's asking for atonement here, right? He knows he needs mercy. He's asking it from Abraham, which is the wrong guy to be asking it from, but he's asking for atonement. And and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So this particular story would have us believe that the idea of being in punishment has a consciousness to it. He was acknowledging the flame. He was acknowledging his thirst. And he was even crying out for mercy. Verse 25, Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in a manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you were in anguish. Besides all this, which I think is the main point of this whole parable, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. It's too late. Verse 27, he said, then I beg you. Okay, if that won't work, now he begins to think about his brothers here on earth. I beg you then, Father, Father Abraham, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God. Let them, pick it back up, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should raise from the dead. It's fixed. It's permanent. You can't come over here and you can't go back there. So this idea of hell is a very weighty idea. Not just this idea of purgatory, cleansing us for our sins until we get better or until we're purified so we can get into heaven. It's an everlasting, permanent, fixed state. If what the Bible teaches is true, it's permanent. Now, the flip side, let's talk about heaven for a minute, shall we? We're going to go to Revelation 19. So there's a gathering of the nations, a separation into two categories. We just read this vivid imagery of what the goats will enter into, the unjust will experience. Let's talk about those who are in Christ. Verse 19, or chapter 19 of Revelation, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Remember the lots of the nations? A great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty pills of thunder, crying out. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. God's people are being united with Jesus. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Remember in Revelation 6, the souls are there crying out, and they were told to wait just a little while longer, and they were clothed. It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. What's happening right now in this scene is what was predicted to happen all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on earth. So as the psalmist writes that in Psalm 46, 10, right, he's describing something that would finally happen. It would finally be a day when the nations would exalt Christ. Uh, Nehemiah 9, 6, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that are in them. You preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. So all these beautiful snapshots of heaven and glory are now coming to a reality at that moment. Let's, let's look at what, how Revelation 21 describes the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Isn't that what Jesus prayed for? That's the point of heaven. Right? God dwelling once again with man. Continue on. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. I can't wait to hear Jesus say that. Death you will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new, a final reckoning, all things new and also he said write this down for these words are trustworthy and true and he said to me it is done I am the alpha I am the omega the beginning and the end to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment what I give you is free to the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he'll be my son But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then verses 9 through 21 describe Jerusalem with some fantastic imagery that I can't even begin to wrap my mind around. Jump down to 22. Then I saw, this is important, in heaven, the new heavens, and I saw no temple in the city. This is different from Jerusalem today, right? Different. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. God himself is the temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. Remember what Jesus prayed in John 17? God, I long for them to see me in my glory. And it's happening. Verse 24. By its light, by the, just the glory of Jesus, will the nations walk. And will the kings on earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will, bring into, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The separation of the sheep and the goats. Chapter 22, the last chapter in your Bible, just one through five. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and its servants will worship him. They will see his what? Face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Eternity. So, what we'll be doing. Will we be playing golf in heaven? I mean, I sure hope not. I hate golf now. (laughs) Don't let golf get between me and Jesus in heaven, right? Go play golf. I want to be face to face with Jesus. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now I see in a mirror dimly. What I see about God is really dim. It's, it's, a, it's, it's kind of fuzzy. But then face to face, now I know in part right now, but then I still know fully as I have been fully known. So what's the determining factor here between the sheep and the goats? The just and the unjust. Those who are resurrected in eternal punishment versus those who are resurrected into eternal life and blessing. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish and have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. We are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. It's the only atoning work that we'll do. And the only way we can grab a hold of it is by faith. Romans 10, 9 through 10, or 10, 9 through 13, because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. Your ethnicity won't have any bearing on whether or not you're a sheep or a goat. For the same Lord is Lord of all. Remember, the nations are gathered, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on his name, or on the name of the Lord, will be saved. That's the determining factor. Not who your parents are, how cool you are, what your personality is like, how awesome people think you are, how successful you are in business. Not even how moral you are. It's what you do with Jesus that determines it. Now, what we want to do is we want to shift to some questions. Okay? Okay. Covered a lot, but haven't covered it all. And, uh, and so I want to hear from you. I'm looking at my phone because Lamb's texting me questions. Some of you have already been texting in questions. If you've got some, go ahead and type them in. It's on your sheet. If you'll type them in, questions at srchurch.tv. They'll go. You can text it or email it. It'll go right to Lamb. And only if your questions are super cool will it make it to my phone. All right. Oh, this one's nice. Will, will there be, I think Brian just put this one in here because he wanted me to say the word sex in the microphone. So will there be food and sex in heaven? Uh, food, quite possibly. Jesus ate after his resurrection. We have physical bodies. Adam and Eve ate in the garden. I don't have any reason to believe that we won't eat. Um, sex, it's a toss-up. We'll toss-up on that one. Plenty of cases can be made that there's no need for right, procreation, but then those who would argue that it's part of our worship and part of something to be enjoyed, all that kind of stuff. But here's the problem. We'll get there in a minute. Like, who are you going to have sex with, right? Because so like, then we have to get into marriage, and will there be marriage in heaven and all those kinds of things. So I'm going to say no on sex and quite possibly on food. It's just my opinion, by the way. Go study it and then let me know where I'm wrong. Um, Should we as Christians be buried or cremated in view of the resurrected bodies? Um, I don't land super hard on this one personally. Some do. Um, Here's what I would say, just speaking into that. Um, What happens to our body? um, Siri, you want to ask a question? So what happens to our body here has no bearing on what it's going to be like at the resurrection. It's resurrected perfect. So it's crippled here. It's resurrected not crippled. I get burned in in a building. It resurrects unburned, right? And so... If my body is cremated, I don't personally believe it's going to have any significant bearing on what's going to happen in the end. The only thing I would ask you to think about is I think there is some um, maybe biblical precedents for the symbolism of death, burial, and resurrection. And so, in a lot of ways, you know, I, I, I would say that you might just want to think about that. Like there's, there is a biblical case for um, our bodies being sown into the dirt and like Jesus being buried, awaiting resurrection. I would land on saying it's purely symbolic, and so that might be something you want to think about as you're. Funeral becomes a testimony to others. And we read maybe from 1 Corinthians 15 about what is sown perishable is raised imperishable. That your burial quite could be a symbol kind of symbolizing that to people. I don't think it's going to affect your eternal destiny. Like I'm not going to see you resurrected as, as a pile of ashes going, ha, 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 you should have done it differently. Like I don't think that's at all that's going to happen. But just think about it in terms of symbol, symbolism. And then I'll let that be your call. I think we've already dealt with that one. Are we, are we in the millennium reign of Christ? Um, it depends on where you land on that one, I guess. Um, some believe we are in the millennial reign of Christ. Those who are post maybe an on-millennius, but the premillennials would say no. We haven't had the second coming yet, so we're not in the millennial reign of Christ. This is a fun one. Can people who commit suicide get into heaven? Yes. Romans 8. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. That's what I would say. I know there are some church traditions that would say differently, but nothing that I do here other than believing in Jesus is a determining factor on whether or not I get in. And so by believing in Jesus, Romans 8, 1 would say, there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then the end of chapter 8 would say, nothing, no height nor depth, nothing on earth or in heaven can separate us from this eternal love we have in Christ. So I would say no. You can email me later if you disagree. That's fine. Um, Will there be (laughs) animals and plants in heaven? Um, I I think so. I think so. I do, because... We're getting new heavens and new earth. The first heaven, right? We had the garden, plants, animals, God created. I don't have any reason to believe it wouldn't be that way. I don't necessarily believe that your dogs are going to be there. I don't know that all dogs go to heaven. Um, I'm not saying that it won't happen, but I'm not anticipating running into Titus, my little cocker spaniel, in heaven. Uh, Again, I'm looking forward to running into Jesus. And so, yeah, but I don't, I mean, one, I don't think your animals have a soul. I think human beings are the only beings created with a soul knit together that way. Um, and then also, your dog's going to have a hard time believing and confessing Jesus. Romans 10, right? Like, it may be a parrot. You could teach a parrot to talk. But it's going to be hard for them to believe it in their heart, right, that God, anyway. So, and Jesus, and Jesus comes back on a horse. Is it just symbolic? Is it not? I don't know. I think it's super cool. I, I look forward to finding out with you. Um. I thought I saw one here about marriage. Is there one about marriage? Am I refreshing these? Are you making these up as we go? Um, Let's deal with marriage. I think that's one that I hear often. The Bible actually addresses this, Matthew 22. Will there be marriage in heaven? This is important. I really think it is. Okay, um, So the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they ask him a question. They're trying to trick him. There's this woman who gets married to this man. Husband dies. She remarries. He dies seven times. And when, when after the resurrection, who's going to be your husband? Right? They're trying to trick Jesus here. And so this is where he responds. This is in, uh, is in Matthew 22. Um, I think it's around 29. Jesus answered them, 29, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Not the God of the dead, but the living. So Jesus is saying, um, no, according to what we just read, um, so then that brings up Will we, will we recognize people in heaven? Will I recognize my wife at least? Will we be cool? Like, will we hang out and worship Jesus together? So, like, here's what I would say for Christ followers here right now in this life, the, our affections for Jesus are continually being outweighed for things in this world. Continually, there's a struggle. My affections for my wife, my affections for my kid my affections for my career, my affections for my hobbies. My affections are continually outweighing my affections for Jesus, okay? What I'm reading, what we just read, the way that speaks to my heart is to say this, that at the moment of resurrection, those scales are dramatically tipped. And my affection for Jesus far outweighs my affection for anything else. Do I hope my wife is there? Absolutely. Absolutely. But do I believe that I will be disappointed if we're not married when we get there? I don't. I believe that I will be excited. Now, that sounds so strange. Why would I say that? Because I believe what we experience there is so much better than anything here on earth. I don't think anybody is going to be disappointed with the nature of your relationships. Will we see and interact with people that we know there? Quite possibly. But Jesus is just saying, "Don't, don't look forward to heaven to simply... Spend some more time working on your marriage. Right? That's, that's not the point of heaven. The point of heaven is to be resurrected in the presence of Jesus and for the scales of the affections of your heart to be tipped towards him to the point where nothing else really matters. So I can almost see myself in heaven, as crazy as this sounds, like my boys are there. I, I love my, they, 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 they um, possess a huge part of the affections of my heart. I don't think I will love them less. It's just that I will love Jesus so much more. And if I don't see them as my sons, but just my brothers in Christ, I don't think I'll be disappointed by that. Okay? So, again, um, will you be married in heaven? I don't think so. Will you recognize people there? Quite possibly. I don't think you will be disappointed with what you get when you get there. I don't. I think you'll actually be excited about the realities of what you experience in heaven. All right. Um, Here's a fun one. That's literally what he just typed. Here's a fun one. How is God involved in making a baby out of wedlock if it is... Did you just make this one up? This one really come in. How is God involved in making a baby out of wedlock if it is outside of his will for babies to be conceived out of marriage? It's a great, great question. Um, um, in terms of holiness, unholiness, I don't think that any person in this room was conceived perfectly in holiness. I'm not judging your parents. I'm just saying that wherever there's sex, there's corruption in sex. So I don't know that anybody was perfectly conceived in holiness outside of Jesus and Mary, right? So um, that being said, like um, I think I would go back to Genesis 50. Um, And I would go to any point where, like even Job, where there's something happening that seems to be outside of God's desire, but yet he's allowing it to happen as part of his will. So I go back to to Genesis 50, Joseph sold in slavery, mistreated, and then his beautiful statement at the end in Genesis 50 where um, his brothers come to him in in some form of repentance and he says "What? what? What you intended for evil, God superintended for good. That's what I would say is happening there. In the same way when my mom and dad got together, what, you know, what they were intending for evil. What was evil about that? They were selfish pleasure involved in conceiving me. And they were after that. They weren't trying to get pregnant. Okay, Selfish ambition there. What they intended for evil, God superintended for good. I'm, I mean, I'm not saying I'm awesome, but I'm just saying. Right. And So God's will unfolding in my life. And so I believe God is sovereign over the womb. I believe that God can take any sin. And, and isn't that what redemption is? taking what is broken and not good and flipping it and turning it into good. And I would say some remarkable leaders in God's kingdom historically have come from or been um, birthed out of sin. We can look at biblical examples even, yet um, became champions for the kingdom of God. God used them in a mighty way. And I think God was still intimately involved in the knitting together of that human being in the womb, whether the parents are married or not. I'm not checking my uh, personal email for about two weeks, by the way, after this. This is good, and I think maybe this will be close to where we end, um, our Q&A. Let me just make sure. Yeah, we didn't really address um, Gehenna, the word for hell. Um, Brian says yes, last one. We can talk about that later. Um, tons of great resources for you. Um, if this topic interests you in a way that you want to know more, um, Secret Church. It's, uh, David Platt does Secret Church. Um, there's a fantastic, and it's much longer than this. it's think it's close to four hours, where he covers almost every passage of Scripture on this page, similar to how we did tonight. I don't think they do a Q&A, but he does a really good job. Um, if you're looking for something smaller and more condensed, um, I think there's a decent book. Um, by uh, Francis Chan. I can't remember the co-author. And it's called, oh, Erasing Hell. It was kind of his response to Rob Bell's Love Wins. It's not super deep theological, but it'll address some of these more surface level issues like um, was Jesus really talking about hell, eternal destruction, or was he referring to a garbage pit outside of Jerusalem? That stuff gets dealt with there. Maybe you go read that, or better yet, study your word. Okay, so God's judgment. Um, That's where I was planning on ending that okay okay so uh, well God's judgment his wrath um, and then and then here's what we're gonna do I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna we're gonna end tonight by singing for those of you who can stay we're gonna end tonight by doing what we will be doing eternally by um, raising together our worship and exalting the name of Jesus um, we on one side of the coin would we go well hell just seems really heavy and mean but on the other side doesn't heaven seem awfully generous and gracious and merciful and I think that should stir our hearts to worship. And so we're going to end there. Um, but a question often gets asked, how could God be a God of justice and even wrath and, and be worthy of worship? And so I think sometimes we have a real weak or shallow idea of what worship is. Um, there's a part of worship that's an expression of excitement and joy and zeal and happiness and just like peace. But you know, there's, a, there's another large component of worship which is rooted in reverence and fear. And so I think that I think understanding God is a God of justice who says this is right and this is wrong and I have authority over it should stir our affections and our heart to worship. To know that the same God, who will be perfectly just, by the way, sending us all to hell, right? Who is at the same time completely worthy to be worshipped whether he does anything in my life or not, yet has chosen to make a fantastic way for us to not go there and it's not even by works, faith, right? Who, though he doesn't have to do anything in our lives, has chosen to do something in our lives to the point where Jesus would temporarily leave his glory and put on our skin and come walk among us, suffer and die and resurrect. I mean, that God deserves to be worshiped, a God who didn't have to do any of that to be worthy of worship, yet did it anyway, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And so that would be my response briefly to how we can still worship a God of justice and wrath, because his justice and wrath is, is met by his grace and love and mercy for us. So let's pray together, and I'm going to ask Jason and the worship team to come up, and, uh, and we'll sing a song together, um, a song of adoration and worship uh, for for a God who loves the world so much that he would send his son on our behalf that whoever would believe in him might have eternal life and not perish. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we have, um, we've taken on quite a lot tonight to discuss and um, at the center of it all, we see you seated on your throne. And I know that in many ways, um, when we think about the end of time, the final days, the unfolding of the timeline here on earth, there's so many questions still stirring in our hearts and minds, but oh, we're so thankful um, that there's at, this, at the same time, there's clarity, like the point of it all is clear, Jesus, we get to be with you. And, and right now, as we, as we think about you, we see you dimly, we see you a little bit blurred, and we are so longing for the day we see you face to face. So Jesus, now we want to say thank you for taking our place on the cross, for bearing the wrath of God on our behalf so that we didn't have to. Thank you for being such a merciful God that you would stoop down. The only one worthy to ascend the heavens and descend to the earth has now made a way for us to get to heaven. Thank you, Jesus for dying on the cross and resurrecting from the grave and giving that victory to us through faith. Let's stand and sing.